From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Here's a strange fact about Georgia. The state has no naturally occurring lakes. It does have a wealth of creeks, streams, and dams. Turns out that some of those dams are failing and that their failures could bring dire, even catastrophic consequences. That's according to data just released from the Associated Press. GBB's Grant Blankenship has been analyzing that information and is on the line from Macon to tell us more. Hello, Grant. Hello. So let's start with the data itself. How did the AP get its hands on it and what's in it? Yeah, so the AP spent two years investigating dam safety. They did that through open record requests to state and federal agencies across the country. And what they found were uh, 1,680 dams nationwide that are not only rated as high hazard because if they failed, people could die. But these dams are also considered to be in poor or unsatisfactory condition. All 1680 of them? Yes, that's that's the roundup number across the country. Just how many dams are we talking about in Georgia and what are they used for? Okay, so the first thing to understand is just how big these dams are. You may have heard that Georgia Power wants to decommission some old hydropower dams, like utility scale stuff. The structures that the AP were looking at, they are not those dams. Think instead of uh, like earthen structures with spillways, smaller levees, things like that. Mm-hmm. The AP found more of those dams in Georgia than in any other state. Um, They're used for everything from keeping farm ponds in check to creating recreational lakes to roles in municipal water supply. But maybe the most important thing they're used for is flood control. Mm -hmm. And the people who are responsible for them range from like private landowners to cities and counties and even the state of Georgia in some cases. And of those 168 dams, a little less than half of those are deemed not only important to preserving human life, but are also in really bad shape. Some of these that are big and could fail are near major cities. What are some examples? So one that really sticks out on the map is the string of seven dams on the Little River watershed in what was once unincorporated Fulton County, but which is now the city of Milton. Those dams were built for flood control way back in the 1960s. And today they protect what you think of as that, like, typical Atlanta suburban sprawl, right? So there's country clubs and a golf course or two. Some of those dams have what are called emergency action plans on file with the state that should describe what people should do if they should fail, but not all of them. There's a pair of dams like that down in Muskogee County near Columbus that are also government-owned. There's more in Madison County north of Athens, and there's some state-owned dams like this up in Pickens County. You spoke with Herman Fritz, professor at the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Georgia Tech, who said dams like those on the Little River watershed reflect a common problem in Georgia. Flood control is very critical, and particularly because we kind of have this, you know, this macro topography we want, right? We don't just have one big valley. It's a lot of smaller valleys and creeks, right? Sort of this uh, rolling hills uh, nature. Um, And uh, there's a lot of construction, you know, building out into new areas, expanding uh, new developments into areas that were never inhabited before. So that raises, uh, raises challenges for flood control, absolutely. That construction isn't just happening around cities. What's happening in North Georgia? Right. So, you know, 50 years ago, there just weren't that many people living in places like Ella J or Helen or Blue Ridge. But today that's changing. People are retiring there. So engineers 50 years ago, they were looking at a very different challenge when it came to flood control in these places. And they might be looking at if they were building these dams today. And so there's a real question about whether those old dams are up to the task of protecting the communities that surround them um, in 2019. 
many of the dams that we are talking about, as you said, very old. How do we keep an eye on their safety until the point when they can be replaced? So the Georgia Environmental Protection Division has a staff of 11 people in what they call their Safe Dams Program. They're responsible for checking on dam safety, but they only get to about a quarter of the dams in the state every year. Tom Woosley heads the Safe Dams Program, and uh, he explains how the state picks up slack and inspection for Category 1 dams. That's their classification for these dams that could lead to a loss of life if they fail. For a Category 1 dam, the dam owner is supposed to be inspecting his dam on a quarterly basis and then every two years retaining an engineer to do that inspection. And then our office is doing kind of a quality assurance check of some of them as depending on, you know, are we getting the reports? What does the report say? That kind of thing. We're talking with Grant Blankenship from GBB in Macon, who's been analyzing new data about failing dams in Georgia. Okay, so he said that the owners are responsible for it. How about other state agencies like the EPD? Right. So that EPD staff, they're seeing a dam maybe once every four years. And in between, they're really relying on these self-inspections that they expect from dam owners. But so remember those dams up in Milton, the North Fulton, on mm-hmm. the Little River watershed, by the golf courses and the country clubs? A representative from the city of Milton told me she was unaware that the city was even supposed to inspect those dams at all. She was under the impression that it was entirely the responsibility of the EPD. Herman Fritz, back at Georgia Tech, also shared with you his thoughts about inspections. Now, one of the challenges, of course, is for dam owners is that they are not necessarily dam inspectors. Quite often, you know, uh, when, when they are asked, you know, what they are doing, when they are looking or inspecting the dam, so-called, that, that can just in some, some cases just mean that they're walking the dam, right, looking for obvious signs. Unless the, uh, uh, the person actually inspecting the dam has some training on how to inspect the dams and, and what to look for, uh, then it can be hard to find, you know, uh, sort of uh, the non-obvious things. Did Fritz share with you any ideas for how to do inspections better or even how they can be better regulated? Well, yeah, he does have some ideas. I mean, there are machines we can deploy to, to monitor dams, right? There, there are these sensors and new technologies that we could put in these structures to gather data, even when we're not walking them or checking them every four years ago, that can tell us how well they're doing their jobs. And that's the sort of thing he'd like to see uh, out in the world. Well, Grant, I can't help but think about notable hurricanes that we've had in recent years. Irma and Michael come to mind. What does this mean for dams? Well, you know, climate change predicts that we're going to have more of these storms. And Herman Fritz uh, points to Hurricane Joaquin back in 2015. We had Hurricane Joaquin dump close to two feet of rain in a couple of days uh, uh, on the greater Columbia area, Richland and the Lexington counties in South Carolina. That's only 100 miles away from the border of, of Georgia and, uh, and South Carolina. I mean, in Columbia, we had, you know, we had dozens of dam breaches. Those dozens of dam breaches led to the death of 19 people. And that's a storm that didn't even make U.S. landfall. But what it did was bring what we called in 2015 like once-in-a-millennium levels of rain. Herman Fritz says that events like that aren't going to remain once-in-a-millennium. And that's one reason we need to take a really hard look at the soundness of all these small dams. So looking through this report, on paper, these dams are a real problem. But have we had any cases of breach dams that cause widespread problems here? 
heretofore the only example of these dams breaking because of a big storm happened way back in 1994. That was Tropical Storm Alberto. But, you know, as I said, climate models predict that that's not going to be an outlier, that we're going to have more of these events and we probably need to prepare for them. So have you heard of any plans to increase funding for dam inspections or even to replace some of these problematic structures near big populations? Well, no. (laughs) I don't know that there is a big plan to address this in a systematic way. But since I started reporting this, the EPD has pointed out that a handful of the structures that were on that AP list were voluntarily breached by their owners in the last year or so. That restored those streams to a free-flowing state. As for the EPD Safe Dam program, it is staffed at an all-time high right now, but their budget has been dropping in recent years. Well, Grant, thank you so much for bringing us through the data on this report. Yeah, thank you for giving me the time. I appreciate it. GPB's Grant Blankenship, based in our Macon Bureau, he's been analyzing new data about failing dams in Georgia, some which, if breached, could be catastrophic to human life. You can find a map of Georgia's dams that he put together at gpbnews.org. Potentially failing dams aren't the only thing that Grant has been tracking lately. He's also been following a decades-old cold case. More than 70 years ago, four people were lynched in the Georgia town of Monroe. It happened at a bridge over the Appalachie River. In the decades since, activists have sought to find out who did it. Now a federal appeals court is weighing in. It's considering whether or not to release a trove of evidence in the lynching at Moore's Ford Bridge. Grant filed this story for NPR. It's an afternoon in July and a crowd of people are trying to find the right spot on a two-lane road outside the town of Monroe to watch a crime. Make your way up the hill, you can see the first scene. In this reenactment, a well-dressed white man with a fuming cigarette waves down a car on the road crossing the Appalachie River. With more white men, he forces four black people, two couples, out of the car. On July 25, 1946, the mob probably wanted Roger Malcolm. He had already been in jail for stabbing a white man. But by the end of this, the 15th annual reenactment of the lynching at Morrisford Bridge, spectators will see how Malcolm's wife, Dorothy Dorsey Malcolm, her brother, George Dorsey, and his wife, Mae Murray Dorsey, were also murdered. And cut! Can everyone just go move that way? The crime made headlines all over the country. But over the course of a grand jury investigation, where the FBI interviewed over 2,000 people, almost half of Walton County 73 years ago, and where over 100 people testified before the grand jury, not a single indictment was handed down. Darius Bradshaw has played Roger Malcolm for five years. By now, there's only one thing about Morse Ford he wants to know. I want to know exactly who did it. Hold on just a little while longer. The answer might be in the Morse Ford grand jury records. Historian Anthony Pitch and his lawyer Joe Bell have been fighting the FBI and the Department of Justice to unseal those records for years. Soon they'll make their case before all 12 judges of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta. But in the morning before the reenactment, Joe Bell tells a crowd in the First African Baptist Church of Monroe that preparing for the hearing has gotten complicated. Most unfortunately, um, Anthony Pitch passed away about three weeks ago. However, and I... Now, without his plaintiff, Bell will have to prove to the court there are enough people who still care about Morse Ford that the records should still be unsealed. And he'll have to find someone to make sense of it all. 
Bell tells the church he's got somebody. Another author, Laura Wexler, wrote a book on the Moore's Ford tragedy as well. So Laura Wexler published her book, Fire and a Cane Break, in 2003. She's spoken to Bell, and she's prepared for the grand jury records, but... Do I think there's going to be a smoking gun in this? Um, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. What she could learn is how people who knew things in 1946, but who kept quiet, helped sustain a system that tolerated murder. We would look to the entire system as both the cause for an incident like this and then the, the, the protection for those who perpetrated it. When Joe Bell argued in October before all 12 judges of the 11th Circuit, he said the time for justice was overdue. And no one, neither the U.S. attorney nor the judges, seemed to want to hold on to the grand jury records. But they aren't Bell's yet. He says something else is at work. I think that's we're, we're in a, the throes of a dilemma where you have to separate whether or not this is a cold case or whether the courts have the inherent authority to release the records of the grand jury transcript. If the court decides judges can release grand jury testimony, the effect could ripple far past this case. Still, Bell says he expects justice in the Morseford lynching someday, maybe even someday soon. For GPB News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon. Coming up, amidst the hubbub of last week's Democratic debate in Georgia, you might have missed the event that had former President Barack Obama in town on the same day. Learn about the Green Build Initiative just ahead. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. With the Democratic debates in Atlanta and news of impeachment hearings out of D.C., you may have missed former President Barack Obama's visit to Georgia last week. He gave a keynote address on Wednesday at the Greenbuild International Conference and Expo in Atlanta. The global green materials market is projected to hit $387 billion by 2023. To get a better sense of the conversation surrounding environmental initiatives and how green building plays into that, GPB's Leah Fleming sat down with Peter Dykstra. He's an environmental reporter and an editor at Environmental Health News and Daily Climate. She also spoke with Sean Aurora. He's director of the Candida Building for Innovative Sustainable Design. The Candida building isn't just eco-friendly, it's designed as a living building. Leah started the conversation by asking Sean what that means exactly. So living buildings, the idea behind a living building is that we live in a resource-constrained world. We have a world where the resources are rapidly depleting. And green buildings have done a great job with decreasing that level of depletion. But is that good enough? In a world where, again, we're running out of stuff, what does it mean to be a building that gives back more? And that's the fundamental idea of a living building, a building that gives back more to the environment than it takes. So living buildings have to be net water positive. We've got to be net energy positive. During the construction process of the building, we have diverted more waste from the landfill 
than we've sent to the landfill. Thereby, we're regenerative and net positive in the construction process. And here's perhaps one of the most important things that folks really connect with. We spend 90% of our time indoors. Put, put another way, that's nine out of every 10 breaths we take is indoors. So what does it mean for the users, the occupants? So living buildings take that into account as well and say, how can we give back more to people than we take? Now, you say it's important that the building actually tell the story of, of being green. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, when you walk into the Candida building, you're going to immediately notice that it's different. You're going to notice that it's made predominantly out of wood. So for a commercial building, it's, it's an education building, but you know what I mean. It's, it's not a residential building to be made mostly out of wood. That strikes you. It's, you're struck by the fact that there's so much natural light that comes in. You can actually see the woods outside. You're going to notice a lot of those things. So the building is talking to you. It's telling you its story, and it's inviting you to learn more. Mm -hmm. So President Trump has taken uh, a different view on the environment. He has uh, announced in the summer of 2017 that he uh, intended to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. And I'm wondering, uh, Peter, since President Trump took office, he's gotten a lot of flack for his approach to the environment. And I'm wondering how have his strategies clash with environmentalists? Uh, in just about every way imaginable. Um, in, in past administrations that were at odds with um, um, the political environmental movement, uh, there at least was lip service there uh, about protecting the environment. The lip service is almost completely gone, and certainly any uh, any shred of environmental concern is gone. The EPA is being run by a former coal lobbyist. The uh, Interior Department is being run by a former oil lobbyist. That says uh, that says about all you need to know. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit more about green building. Uh, Sean, construction of a new building can often disturb the environment, and um, hence the reason for this green building push. What considerations were taken when choosing the location for the Candida building? One of the requirements of the living building challenge is that you pick a place uh, that does minimal disruption. So the place where the Candida building is prior to it being the Candida building, was a parking lot. So what we've done is actually made that place better for the environment by building a building on it, especially considering that um, you know, when, a, when rain falls on a parking lot, it just wants to go away, mm -hmm. and all of the pollution that's on that parking lot goes away. And where it typically goes is in, in Atlanta is uh, into neighborhoods that would rather not have that runoff. The Candida building, not only did we replace that parking lot with a building, but that building manages its water on site. So we're not having downstream impacts uh, that are essentially, it's an equity issue. You know, our, our water is managed on our site, so it doesn't become a problem for our neighbors downstream. Uh, and you got very creative with uh, sourcing eco-friendly building materials, didn't you, in this building? Yeah, the, the, um, another requirement is on the material side, and quite frankly, if you talk to everybody in the design build team on what has been the most challenging aspect of the living building challenge, I think everybody would say materials. Um, because A, we don't think about what goes into our materials and how it impacts our health and the health of the people who make the material 
somewhere really far away. So one of the requirements is that we need to have the healthiest material possible. And the way you get there is you vet the ingredients of almost everything that goes into a building. And we don't have a national standard for vetting the material, so you've got to go out there and ask what are the ingredients of this material. Most companies have never been asked that. So that's one thing. Another thing is we use an immense amount of salvaged material in the building. And that's another place where the story of the building really comes through because people have an attachment to things they can touch. They don't necessarily see the health benefit of clean air in the building. But when I tell folks or when, when, I, when people are coming through the building and say, hey, I heard you guys reused wood from Georgia Tech Tower. So it's the most iconic building on campus. It's the oldest building on campus. And then I point to the stair treads and say, that used to be wood in Georgia Tech Tower. So what I say is the Candida building has examples where we can use Georgia labor, where we can use Georgia materials. 50% of all materials that go into the Candida building were sourced within a thousand kilometers or less of the Candida building. Uh, so for people that are, you know, consumers that are looking to have more eco-friendly homes, what are some of the steps that they can take? The first step on having an eco-friendly home mm -hmm. is the same step no matter where you are. Start with efficiency, period. That helps your pocketbook, it helps your comfort, and it lowers your utility bill. And the quickest way and easiest way that we have made efficiency uh, accessible is, quite frankly, lighting. You know, good luck finding an incandescent light bulb at a store. Ten years ago, good luck finding an LED light bulb, or rather, affording an LED light bulb at the store. So start with efficiency. These are little things that really help save energy and make your home more comfortable for you and your family. Uh, so but, it doesn't necessarily have to look like the Candida building right absolutely, off the bat. Absolutely not. In fact, I, I say that the Candida building is like walking into a restaurant saying, let me see your menu. And someone hands you the menu and you take a look at the menu and say, I'll take everything. Give me everything. Mm -hmm. Most people don't want everything on the menu. But if you're interested in water, then I got all the water solutions for you in this region. I can really expand your... Uh, thought process with the Candida building. If you are interested in materials and healthy materials, then we can, we can talk to you about the healthy materials. So whatever it is that you're interested in, the Candida building probably has it. And hopefully when you go through the Candida building, Georgia Tech has been able to elevate your thought process and you're not going to be the same. You're going to enter with one thought process and you're going to leave with another. One green building project that's been up and running for several years in downtown Atlanta, uh, right across from uh, the Tabernacle, uh, the Turner Foundation has uh, owns a parking lot, and that parking lot is shaded by solar panels. So you can park your car and keep it out of the uh, heat, and at the same time, the parking lot itself is generating energy. Oh. Yeah, that's been there for a long time. Really? Yeah. Pe people have probably walked by that solar canopy and they don't think anything of it, but it's been there for a while. Yeah. It's innovative, it's easy, and it's a no-brainer.
Yeah. I'm speaking with Sean Aurora. He's director of the Candida Building, the new Living Green Building on Georgia Tech's campus. And we are also speaking with Peter Dykstra, an editor at Environmental Health News. Peter, you've been covering the environment for a while. And for some context, when did awareness of the environment really become a larger part of the conversation that we're having in our country? Well, I've been following the environment uh, since way back in the 20th century. And around 1970, uh, there, was, um, uh, there was a huge jump in environmental concern. There was a huge jump in political activism overall. Um, the women's uh, rights movement, the gay rights movement, uh, uh, the civil rights movement, of course, um, all came about. Uh, the Vietnam War was uh, turning many people into activists. The environmental movement got its big boost at the same time, and there were several um, very uh, regrettably telegenic events happening. The Cuyahoga River in Cleveland uh, was so dirty that it caught fire and burned. Uh, there was a big oil spill off of Santa Barbara, California. There were other events that happened. Uh, many environmental groups came together at that time uh, and were founded, but also the um, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act, uh, the creation of the EPA, the creation of uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, all came about, and they all came about during the administration of that great tree hugger, uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. <laughs> But, you know, when we talk about climate change and the environment today, it just seems like it is so partisan. And I'm wondering, was it always divided along uh, political lines, this conversation about the environment? Let me give you my favorite example. Uh, There's a group called um, the League of Conservation Voters, LCV.org, that puts together a congressional scorecard each year. They grade grade, um, uh, members of Congress and senators. Uh, on uh, environmental votes and environmental bills taken um, back around uh, maybe the 1980s, 1990s. Uh, Republicans uh, typically scored around 50 percent. Democrats scored around 70 percent. These days, the Democrats are over 90 percent. The conservatives are under 10 percent uh, or Republicans under 10 percent. And uh, uh, many score a zero. But my favorite example is from 1980. There was a young congressman from uh, uh, Georgia, a Republican congressman, who got a 50% rating, and a young congressman from Tennessee who got a 35% rating. Uh, The 50% rating was Republican Newt Gingrich. 15 points lower was Democrat Al Gore. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So the Candida building, it's located in a very urban area. And I'm wondering, do you think we're going to see more projects in rural areas like this? Oh, I I certainly hope so. In many ways, rural areas are even uh, better suited Mm -hmm. for what we've done. Rural areas, especially uh, those that don't have a lot of uh, tree canopy around it. So I'm thinking big farmland in Georgia. You can build a building that's associated with that farm, have solar on top of it, huge catchment area for your water. And now uh, you've got all the resources that you need right there. But here's the interesting thing. One thing I'm really, really fascinated by is the state of Georgia's ability to use its agricultural industry to create building product. So think about it. We've got this technology that takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and creates building material. And that technology is called a tree. 
<laughs> and Georgia's the number one state in the country for timber products. So why aren't we creating new high-tech timber products like we have in the Candida building that replace the need for importing steel? Why aren't we looking at our agricultural waste product and thinking, what can we do with agricultural waste to turn that into a building material? So I, I think what the Candida building shows here in Georgia is Georgia solutions, homegrown Georgia solutions that cut through, I think, some of this political discourse. Because at the end of the day, I think Georgians fundamentally care about the environment. Mm-hmm. Georgians fundamentally care about the economic future of this state. And with green buildings, we have the opportunity to really bring both of those completely in sync. In sync, yeah. yeah. Peter, would you agree with that? Has your reporting shown that? Oh, absolutely. Um, there, there's so much common sense out there, and it tends to um, uh, deflect a lot of what real reporting on the environment shows, which is extinction and um, cancer clusters and climate change and coastal cities being uh, inundated by sea level rise. Our, our beat is kind of a depressing one. And the things that Sean is talking about and doing uh, are the antidote to that, uh, not just in in uh, reporting and receiving environmental news, uh, but in day-to-day real life. It saves money, and in the long run, through health benefits, it saves lives. GPB's Leah Fleming speaking with Peter Dykstra and Sean Aurora. Peter is editor at Environmental Health News and Daily Climate. You can find his work at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Sean is director of the Candida Building for Innovative Sustainable Design at Georgia Tech. We're going to head into the break with music from the High Meadow School in Roswell. Second and third grade students collaborated with their music teachers to write a new song called Breakdown as part of the Climate Action Project. Stay with us for two CDC scientists turned pie champions as they put a twist on the traditional dessert everybody loves, pie. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Is there any dessert as transporting or quite as delicious as pie? From summer blueberry to Thanksgiving pumpkin, pies are carriers of memory and tradition. A pair of CDC doctors encourages you to escape the flaky crust rut of baking the same old pies this holiday season. Paul Arguin and Chris Taylor bonded over baking. Since entering their first pie competition on a whim in 2011, they've taken home hundreds of awards, including the 2017 National Pie Champion 
championship for a checkerboard peanut butter pie. They've also made a home together as a married couple. Their latest collaboration is a cookbook, The New Pie, featuring 75 pies and modern techniques to shake up the classic American dessert. And their story is not just about pies. It's also about their romance together. I asked Paul and Chris how they met. Uh, So actually, we had a friend in common. I was uh, finishing up my PhD work at the University of Pittsburgh, and Paul was already living down in Atlanta, and a friend of mine left after she graduated and took a job at CDC and worked with a friend of Paul's. And she had met him, I think, at parties a couple times and said, oh, I have a friend back in Pittsburgh who I think you'd really like. Um, You have, I think, similar senses of humor. And, And she told me the same thing, and I think Paul and I both thought, Sure. Yeah, naturally. I rolled my eyes saying, yeah, I'm sure you have a friend. Yes. But as it turned out, we started chatting and uh, and she was right. Uh, we had an awful lot in common. Including baking? Yes. That was that was one of the first things we started talking about. So uh, we had we both had fairly extensive cookbook collections and uh, we we talked about uh, you know, what we had, what we like to do. And that's when I had the idea. Well, we're still living so far apart, but why don't we bake something together yeah, you know, via telephone. That's kind of adorable. Thank you. <laughs> what did you What did you decide to bake? Well, so that was I blame Chris for this. So I was visualizing in my head, oh, brownies, uh, pound cake, you know, the, something simple. And I just threw it to him and said, "You pick." And and I said, "Well, there's something," and because we had one cookbook in common, which was the Cake Bible by Rose Levy Berenbaum, and I'd always wanted to make the Scarlet Empress. All right, that just sounds complicated. <laughs> so it's yes. sort of a baroque style a Charlotte bomb dessert. So it's <laughs> you make a jelly roll filled with raspberry preserves. You cut the jelly roll into slices. You line a bowl with those slices, and you fill that with a Bavarian cream, and then you let it set and flip it all upside down and take it off, and you have this beautiful, almost brainy-looking bomb dessert that you cut into wedges and wow all your friends with cover with raspberry swirls chris were you trying to put him through the paces or just keep him on the phone longer (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i i hadn't actually thought of it at the time i was just thinking this is always something i've really wanted to make let's go ahead and make it um and it just so happened it it turns out to be a really good relationship primer you know (laughs) it's like you can get someone on the phone for hours at a time and if they don't hang up on you in disgust. It's probably a good start. <laughs> so you were punching up from the beginning. <laughs> but your first pie competition was Pie Squared. And this is after you got together. You moved to Atlanta? Correct. Okay. That's Chris, by the way. Um, and you you did this pie competition, Pie Squared in Dahlonega back in 2011. What was that like? Why, why did you even decide to do it? Uh, you know, early in the relationship, you're always looking for interesting and fun things to do on the weekend. And I'm not sure where he found it, but uh, maybe some um, website or but you know, newspaper found this pie contest and said, is that something you think you'd, you'd like to try? And so I said, yeah, that sounds like a great weekend activity. And Chris took home the award. Yeah, blue for, ribbon. What'd you get? What'd, what'd you make, rather? Um, it was the summer strawberry pie that's actually featured in the book. And a beautiful pie it is, by the way. There are many beautiful pies in this book. You both have competed in hundreds of contests since then with a combined 614 wins. That's at least time of printing. Has that gone that's, up? No, no, that's that's still correct. You're holding fast. <laughs> <laughs> that's still very impressive. So what is the atmosphere like at these events? Is it, you know, cutthroat or more akin to the genteel episode of The Great British Bake Off? Yeah, it's very collegial, um, especially at the the National Pie Championship. I think that's the contest we interact most with other competitors. 
Um, and it's really great. Uh, I know some of our fellow competitors sort of refer to it as pie camp. You come back every year and you get to see all your friends and everyone competes against each other. But you know, even if you don't win, you get to see your friend win, which is always a great experience anyway. Well, you rate degrees of difficulty in the new pie in the book, yes. the ingredients, the equipment, the construction of the pie itself. What are, what are some of the easiest, like for beginners for, or the pie-phobic? Um, I'd say probably one of the easiest ones is the um, uh, 6151 Richmond, uh, which is uh, uh, th that's uh, really a, a Chris-inspired pie. Yes, Go ahead. It's inspired by the Golden Girls, which is a favorite show of mine. <laughs> so it's a it, we have each ingredient sort of in inspired by one of the characters in the show. So it's a pecan graham cracker crust. So it's a simple crust to make and has pecans in it, um, an ode to Blanche Devereaux, the Southern Belle. And then it's uh, a limoncello cheesecake, so limoncello and Italian lemon liqueur um, for Sophia and Dorothy. And then it's topped with the lingonberry preserves um, for a Scandinavian woman of the year, um, <laughs> St. Olaf woman of the year, Rose Nyland. And it all comes together in a no-bake cheesecake, which is, you know, what they always sat around and enjoyed together. It is absolutely a beautiful pie. And you have a number of other boozy pies in here. This is this is a pie for grown-ups in one chapter, anyway. Correct. You know, one of the chapters is, is solely uh, dedicated to um, pies inspired by cocktails. Um, so, yeah, we have uh, 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 mango colada. We have um, actually a really fun one that's in there is the, um, it's called the Nicolet. Um, it's a, uh, uh, based on a, a boozy cappuccino drink uh, at an Italian restaurant that um, uh, it's actually in my home in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. Um, and so it's a combination of multiple liqueurs in this creamy um, chocolate and, and coffee base. Um, I, I think it's fantastic. So it's, and it's also, that one's actually fairly easy to make. Okay, so that's the thing about these pies. They, there's such variety here that goes beyond, I don't know, pies on an almost what grandmother folksy tradition what, so what yeah. does new pie mean to you so we really want to you know still respect the tradition of the pie which carries a lot of memory um you know with families but we really want to to say pie doesn't always have to be what you thought it was it's not always just cherry and blueberry and vanilla cream you know you can do so much with pie it's such a almost an infinite um, dessert. And so we really wanted to, to showcase that, um, but also in a way that we sort of updated it a little because a lot of times with pie techniques, um, you know, recipes can be very rustic or homey in their instruction, especially um, with something like pie crust, where it's sort of like a lot of recipes will say, you know, you'll know it when you see it, hmm. putting it together. We really wanted to take a scientific approach as scientists. And so we really advocate for, you know, weighing your ingredients using a digital scale, you know, to know that if you have a, a formula and a proportion, that it's something that's more reliable um, than maybe what other people have experienced before, especially if they've had, uh, you know, experienced a lot of frustration making pie crust. But that's funny because, you know, they say cooking is an art, baking is a science. So you two are both scientists, right? Or are you used to the scientific method? That's right. Does that give you an edge? I think it does, and in fact, I th we tried to put that into the into the book. Uh, we strongly advocate weighing ingredients um, because that's one of the issues that people will face. They'll they'll say, you know, well, my grandmother used to put a handful of this, a scoop of that, and and that may be how they learn. And in fact, we were talking with someone recently who said, I always, when I make a pie, throw in some fruits, handful of sugar, and and why do I even need a cookbook at all? And the fact is, sometimes he might be spot on and come up with a pie. 
more often than not, he'll have a runny mess or something that's thick and gluey, too sweet. Um, so if you could actually measure, you're more likely to have a success time after time. I'm speaking with CDC scientists and pie innovators, Paul Arguin and Chris Taylor, authors of The New Pie. It's a cookbook that adds fresh and a lot of fun flavors to the traditional definition of the classic American dessert. Okay, so let's get to some hard-hitting questions here, (laughs) shall we? If you could choose one pie, sweet or savory? Oh, that's so hard. It's it's like choosing a child. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I I think I've accepted this as my answer now, um, is the cheese course. So it's, oh right, there's a cheese course pie. Yeah, so right. we've modeled it after like what you a cheese course you'd get after a, f- a fancy meal. So it's a walnut graham cracker crust, a layer of um, fig and port wine jam, and then a, a cream on top made with gorgonzola dolce blue cheese, um, which I think you know just. Looking at it, I think some people would think, oh, blue cheese and a dessert pie, but it works really, really well. It's not too cheesy. It's not too sweet. Um, it has that nice fruit layer, with, um, especially with the wine. It, it's really a fantastic pie. We've had a, I would say we, we had, had a lot of fun surprising people when we, we served this at, the, at a dinner party, and they go, going, cheese, this is going to be a savory course. And they're surprised because it's, a, it's still it's a, it's a dessert pie. Are people lining up to go to your dinner parties, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, it, it took a while because as we were readying things and testing the recipes, we were bringing a lot of pies to a lot of people's houses. And I think at one point, I think people just stopped answering their doors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, other questions, lard or shortening? Uh, you can use either, really. Uh, we, we've sided in the book uh, uh, with shortening, uh, and people shouldn't be afraid of vegetable shortening. It, it's, a, it's a very good product. It has a lot of good purposes. Um, uh, both, uh, whether you use lard or shortening, they perform similarly um, in that they have uh, their, their uh, similar melting points. Um, they uh, allow you to work the dough a little bit easier. So when you're rolling out the dough, trying to fit it into your pie plate, um, it, it gives a little bit more flexibility uh, than a pure butter crust alone. Shortening is certainly going to be a lot easier for most people to find. Mm-hmm. When we say lard, we're not talking about the regular lard that you'd find on the, the shelf in your grocery store. The lard that's recommended for use in dessert pies is uh, something called leaf lard, if you're not familiar. No. There's um, a, a, a part of the pig, um, that's, it's the fat right around the kidneys uh, that uh, is the least piggy in flavor. And so it's, it's, it's prized for, for making these pies. So if you can find a butcher who renders out leaf lard for you, um, it'll be almost flavorless. And, and it's the per- it really it does produce a wonderful pie. All right. How about crust by hand or food processor? I would definitely say food processor. That's the way I've sort of always done it. Um, Paul used to do by hand. Uh, but now I think he's converted to a food processor as well. I, I find it to be faster. You do it quick. So I know some people say like, oh, it heats up, can heat up your dough. It can heat up the fats in your dough. But if you do it in short, quick pulses, because um, you don't want to make a ball of dough in your food processor with pie dough. That's, you'd really overwork it at that point. But I, I think food processor is really the way to go. But if you don't have a food processor, by hand is just fine. In fact, we give instructions for both in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes if, if all you're doing is one you know, disc of pie dough, it might be easier just to have a bowl in your pastry cutter and do it by hand. Um, yeah, I think why I've converted myself is we often make a ton of pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, I'd have you know, huge forearm muscles at this point if I was making every single batch of pie dough by hand. Is every pie better with ice cream? I think anything is better with ice cream. <laughs> 
<laughs> hot pie or cold pie? Obviously, cheesecake is not going to be a great hot pie. Well, I'd I'd answer that for the fruit pies. Um, You want it um, really at room temperature. So, let's say an apple pie, let's say fresh out of the oven, steaming hot. That's actually, it smells fantastic at that point. But that's probably a terrible time to cut it, uh, being that the thickener that you've used to sort of set up your apple pie, um, it's reached its gelling point temperature-wise, but now it needs to cool down to form that gel to hold the pie together. If you cut it at that point, it's all going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So must let a pie rest. Absolutely. Yes. How many pies do you all make in a week? I'm curious. Right now, I'd say maybe one or two. Um, yeah. While we were doing the book, sometimes... 20? Yeah. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a ton. Yeah, we would each do four or five over the weekend. And your, your book is full of beautiful spins on the beloved pie classics. What, what goes into making a new recipe? Do you always collaborate on this, or one has the inspiration? Or I think it depends. Yeah, some of our, I think our, our most spectacular pies have been fi- complete 50-50s, where um, I'll toss an idea his way, and he'll make it blossom. He'll throw it back at me. I'll add another little spark. Um, but there, there certainly are some that are pure Chris and pure me. So when you compete, you compete with your own pies, right? Correct. And, and we've always, I guess, with, I guess for the first time ever this year, we entered the same category once. But up until that point, we were always in separate categories so that we wouldn't compete directly against each other until best of show. I mean, once you reach the best of show round, I mean, you'd love to have you know, both of us in the best of show round. That's, that's, that's ideal. Yeah. Who's, who's pie won that competition? Mine did. Yeah. <laughs> but but Paul's was a, he had some in the contending too. So it's all first place winners of the different categories. So blue blue ribbon winning apple, blue ribbon winning blueberry all go against each other for best of show. And so I had the blue ribbon peanut butter pie that year, which one? Oh, right. That was the checkerboard pie. Yes. That's a beautiful pie. And that's the other thing. The decorations, the look of these pies. Is one of you more adept at finishing them off or is this a skill both of you have come up with? In different ways, yeah. So Chris definitely has some um, beautiful hand piping skills. So yeah, anything really delicate and lovely, that's probably his work. Um, I, I've learned other ways of, of decorating pies. So some of the embossed crust tops uh, that you've seen, like the um, the maple blueberry. Um, right, with the swirling top pattern in the top. Yeah, you know, uh, that one's in the, um, I think that's the, um, the swirls is on the... Uh, Cranberry, I think. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful yeah. looking pie. But the wood grain pattern, that's the one that's on top of the uh, <laughs> of the blueberry. This is so fantastic. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. and But you also have, you know, pies that you would never imagine, like a beet pie, the unbeatable pie. Yes. So, so you know, how, how are you going to get people off of their idea of the old steaming pie that they get on Thanksgiving or, you know, the apple pie fresh out of the oven in the autumn? Yeah, it, it's, I think it's going to take some work because I think... It, it, pie can take some work to put together, and I think, unfortunately, most people only experience the joy of pie on, you know, special f- winter holidays. You know, you, definitely Thanksgiving, sometimes Christmas. Um, we've actually been surprised, um, you know, how many people made pies for Fourth of July, which was really great to see that people are turning on their ovens and turning out fantastic pies for summer holidays. So, you know, maybe it is, you know, maybe there is a pie renaissance coming. Yeah, we were tagged a lot on social media, and it was it was just lovely to see because you you can recognize them. Say, hey, wait a minute, and you can see, hey, that's that's the peanut butter and jelly pie. And we always try to put out, you know, if you have if you're making a pie and you have a question, contact us through social media, send us a message, we'll get back to you. And where can people find your pies on social media? Uh, we're at flour, sugar, butter, our three favorite ingredients, on Instagram and Facebook. I want to thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. This Thank was you. great. Paul Arguin and Chris Taylor. Their book, The New Pie, is a great antidote to the same old holiday fare. We'll leave the last word on the subject to Bob Dylan with his song, Country Pie. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns, Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for taking a little bite out of your day with On Second Thought. Dinner, honey, I'll be there. That'll be at my big white goose.